Let's open the Scriptures together to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 12, a few verses there, and then a few verses from chapter 13. And we have in these verses uh, something of the background of what the Lord Jesus does in our text. As I mentioned, He laments over His people in our text. So we begin at Luke 12, verse 54. Jesus also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. And then turning the page to verses 31 to 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken." And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Our text this morning comes from Luke 19, the verses 41 through 44. Last week we dealt with the entry of our Lord into Jerusalem, riding on the foal of a donkey. And we saw that that was a mixed experience for the Lord. 
And then we pick it up at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. So far the reading of our text. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Last week we saw our Lord Jesus approaching Jerusalem as king, but not the kind of king that the people were looking for. He drew near Jerusalem riding not on a war horse led by an army of soldiers in a long victory parade, but riding on the colt of a donkey led by humble fishermen from Galilee. And though the crowds welcomed him as king, it was a hollow reception we saw because Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew that they would soon turn their back on him. And Jesus was also met with outright rejection from the Pharisees, the leaders. Teacher, they said to him, rebuke your disciples. So Christ's entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday is a stark paradox. What appears to be his finest hour, his most joyful moment, is in fact one of the lowest points in his ministry. And in our text this morning, this paradox continues, for we find the king beginning to cry. It's not often we see a grown man cry in public, but how often have you seen or heard of a king weeping in public? What is it about this occasion that causes King Jesus to break down in tears? And what message does his lament hold for us today? Well, I hope to answer those questions this morning as I bring to you this word of the Lord, King Jesus laments his stubborn church. We'll see him desiring her repentance and mourning her rebellion. There's no question it's a moving scene that Luke describes for us. On the one hand, you've got, he paints for us this, this crowd of people, followers of Jesus, singing and praising God. They're cheering His entry, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. They're even laying their cloaks on the roadways so that uh, the donkey would ride over them as a, as a way, we might say, to roll out the red carpet. That was their way, lay the cloaks, their own cloaks before Him. They're waving their palm branches, we know from other texts, all in celebration. So, 
in the crowd, there's this festive atmosphere. There's almost this carnival atmosphere of joy and celebration. Everybody's happy. But suddenly there's a turn, verse 41, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. So while everybody around is excited and happy and laughing, Jesus is evidently disturbed and upset and crying. Now, sometimes tears come to our eyes when we are overcome with positive emotions, like thankfulness or joy. But that's not what's happening here. Nor were the tears of our Savior quiet sobs. It wasn't just a, a few tears streaming down His cheek. No, the verb that Luke uses to describe it is a very strong one. It describes a very loud wailing, a loud crying out. It's the same verb used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the bitter weeping of Peter after he betrayed the Lord Jesus, also the mourning of Mary and Martha over the death of Lazarus, and even going back to the Old Testament, the heartbreak that David, King David uh, felt over the death of King Saul. It's a, it's a lament. It's a, a wailing cry. So you have to picture this being very loud. This is definitely not Jesus having a private moment of feeling verklempt about something, but this is Israel's king unabashedly making a public scene, wailing and crying. In other words, Israel's king is lamenting, and he wants his people to see it. Why? Why would Jesus lament, and why would He want people to see it? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 42, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Would that you, who is the you? Well, that's Jerusalem, the city that he's looking at. And it's a very emphatic you here in the Greek. We have it in the English. In the Greek, it's even more pressed. It's, it, the, the pronoun you is used several times over. So he's focused on the city of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem, we know, was a special city. It was the royal city of David. It was the rightful home of Israel's king, so it actually was Jesus' rightful home, even though he never lived there. But even more importantly, it was the city where God dwelt in His holy temple. You remember from the Old Testament that at a certain time, God chose the city of Jerusalem. He designated it His city. He commanded David and, and Solomon to build His temple there in that city because He would put His name there. It would be His dwelling place on earth. So Jerusalem was a, was a special city, and, and Mount Zion, on which Jerusalem was built, those two names, Jerusalem and Zion, they soon became symbolic, or you could say shorthand, for describing both the place where God lived on earth and the place where His people came to live with Him, to fellowship with Him. And what we find over time in the Old Testament is that 
the name Jerusalem or the name Zion, it came to stand for the people of God as a whole. Very often it's used that way. It, became, it came to stand for an image of the church, God's people. And you know, we, it's really helpful for us to understand that as we read the Old Testament, whether it's the prophets or the Psalms. Most of the time when we read or when we sing in the Psalms about Zion or Jerusalem, we're singing about the church like we did from Psalm 137. Along the streams of Babylon in sadness, we sat and wept remembering Zion's gladness. That's not just a reference to the mountain or to the ancient city on which, uh, which was built on that mountain. It's a personification of all of God's people, of all Israel. And that's what makes those psalms still relevant for us today. The church of today is the same to God as the Zion or the Jerusalem of old. We even know that God uses the same image to describe today's church. Think of Revelation 21 where John writes, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So Jerusalem, now the new Jerusalem, is an image of the church. It's a picture of the bride of Christ. So when you sing in the book of Psalms about Zion or Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, understand you're singing about yourself. You're singing about the church. So what is it that upsets King Jesus so much about the church? Well, he, he says of the church, would that you, even you, had known this day the things that make for, pe for peace. His people don't know what makes for peace. That's a tragic irony. He's speaking of uh, Jerusalem course, symbolic then for the church, but Jerusalem, the city, the, the name Jerusalem means foundation of peace. Jeru Shalem. You can hear the word shalom in there. Foundation of peace, and yet the city, famed as the foundation of peace, knows nothing about peace or shalom. The very purpose of God covenanting with Israel, the very purpose of Him choosing Jerusalem long before was to establish His temple there and bring peace between Him and His people. And yet, Jesus says, my people don't know what makes for peace. Well, why don't they know? And what exactly does Jesus mean? Because if we think about what Israel knew, the knowledge they had, they knew quite a bit. They had already had God's covenant with them spelled out in the books of Moses. They had it signified and sealed to them in the circumcision, uh, the sacrament of circumcision. Israel, the church, knew God's promises in His covenant. They had been written down. They had been repeated. They had been taught to them. They knew of the promise of peace and prosperity, of blessing. They also knew what God asked of them their covenant obligations. They knew they had to love the Lord. They knew they had to obey His commandments with all their heart. So every Jew had knowledge of what disobedience and lack of love for God would lead to. And yet, King Jesus says, 
If only you had known this day the things that make for peace. What Jesus is hinting at, what he's inferring, is that their lack of knowing is not a lack of knowledge. It's not an unconscious ignorance where somebody just never heard and they just never knew. They didn't have any possibility to know. No, he's hinting at something way more serious and sinister, a, a conscious rebellion against their God. And that's what causes the Savior to weep. He pinpoints it in verse 44 at the very end, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, we might read that and and read right over that or, or even wonder, like, what even is that, a visitation? We don't use that word a ton. If we hear the word visitation, we think of funeral visitations or maybe church visitations, but neither of those fit this context. And if we think of the word visit, well, maybe after church some of us might go visit another family or we might visit somebody, and, and that's for fellowship and social time. But in the Bible, that verb visit is used in a different way. It's used very specifically to speak of God coming down from heaven to His people or sometimes to the Gentiles, and He would, he would come to them, He would visit them for a particular reason. Not a social call, but He would visit them for a particular reason. And the two reasons He might visit are either to save them from their enemies, or on the negative side, He might visit His people to punish them for their sin, their rebellion. So, this idea of visitation, this is God's visiting His people, it either would bring redemption or it would bring judgment. Sometimes it would bring a measure of both, but either way, visitation from God was a major event in Israel's history. It was God coming to them, had tremendous importance, but Jesus is saying now that Israel, the church of God, it refused to recognize God visiting them. It refused to understand that God was right there in their midst as He was speaking, that their God was in fact riding into Jerusalem on a colt. Israel was missing out on the blessings that could have been theirs had they received Jesus truly as God in the flesh the visitation of the Almighty. For again, the Israelites of the day, the church of the day, they had all the evidence that they needed to know that God was there visiting them. They had heard the, the preaching of Jesus. Nobody else had ever preached like that. They heard His claims to be the Christ, the Son of God. They saw the miracles the signs that no one else could have ever possibly done or ever did do, those signs and miracles verified Jesus' claim that He was sent from the Father. He was the Son of the Father in heaven. They had all that knowledge at their fingertips to really know the things that made for peace, but they rejected that knowledge. That's what Christ was teaching earlier in the parable of the fig tree, Luke 13. 
which we read. He describes Israel as a fig tree which was planted by a certain gardener. The gardener was the Lord. But for three years, he found no fruit on it. That's a compact way of describing that God found no faithful response from His church despite a lot of patience for three years. There was no love from His people. There was no faith. There was no obedience coming forth from His people. And yet, the Lord exercises still more patience for He allows the vine dresser, who is Jesus in that parable, to work one more season. The vine dresser says, let me work one more season. I'll, I'll put manure around it. I'll, I'll work up the soil. I'll, I'll, I'll baby it, basically. And let's see if it will bear some fruit yet, but if not, let's then cut it down. One more year, Lord. And the vine dresser was granted his request. So, brothers and sisters, the one year is up, you see. Jesus is now on his final approach to Jerusalem. He's only days away from crucifixion. He's weeping on that final approach because the one season of the parable had passed and still there is no fruit on Israel's tree which means the time of destruction for Israel is at hand. There was no fruit on its tree. Is there fruit on your tree? Does Christ, the vine dresser, see the fruit of love and obedience in your life as a Christian? Is there fruit on the tree of Ancaster Church congregation? Does God observe among us collectively a crop of good works, deeds of love, devotion to one another as fellow Christians, as well as deeds of kindness and compassion toward our, our neighbors outside the church? It is true that the Lord Jesus in our text is addressing this particular warning to Israel at this particular time in its history, but this warning is for our benefit too, isn't it? This warning isn't just meant to impact Israel of the day. It's still meant as a warning for us individually today and for us collectively as the church. Isn't there a day of judgment coming for us all? Israel's judgment came in the year 70. Our judgment is coming. We don't know what year, but it's coming. As Jesus said elsewhere, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you and I had better not walk away from this passage merely tisk tisking that Israel was so rebellious in rejecting Jesus, and how could it reject Jesus when, it was, when He was right there in front of their faces, and uh, how, how crazy is that? No, no, let's not do that, beloved. We'd better hear this lament for ourselves. The lament of our King for the stubborn hearts of His people because those stubborn hearts are ours by nature just the same, like we sang from hymn 12. 
Let's take His warning and make sure that we are busy, each of us, all of us, repenting and producing the fruits of repentance. For that, more than anything else, is what our King desires from His church, His church of all times. The Lord Jesus expressed that great desire already in Luke 13, which was an earlier lament. There wasn't the, the wailing as there was now, but he said in Luke 13, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together like a hen gathers together her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. Jesus made it clear already in Luke 13 that His lament and the promised judgment to come, it wasn't done in haste. This wasn't like an instant reaction to, to a, a, a temporary or first-time offense from Israel. No, for the hundreds of years previous to Jesus' arrival, many hundreds of years, God had sent warning after warning to His church through one prophet after another, but aside from a few momentary acts of repentance on the part of Israel, what was the overarching reaction through those, those centuries? Jesus describes it this way, Jerusalem killed the prophets, and they stoned those who were sent to warn them of their evil practices. And now, as in our text, as the Lord Jesus approaches Jerusalem, He knows they're about to do the same thing again. They're going to kill the one sent from God. And this time, it's the Son of God. Their rebellion is heightened. It's coming to its fullness. And yet, do you see in all of this, brothers and sisters, the love, the love of the Savior coming out? Who's he expressing love for? He's expressing love for the rebellious, his rebellious covenant people. It's there in his wailing out loud for everyone to see. He's crying out to his stubborn people at the 11th hour as he's approaching Jerusalem, urging them to repent. Verse 42, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. If only you wouldn't reject me as your God and Savior. If only you would listen to my preaching and remember my miracles and put your faith in me. Even today, my people, there would be time for you to repent and there would be time for you to receive peace. If only you would know. If only you would come to me. This is the plea. Jesus knows what's in store if they don't come to Him. That's the upshot of that very stark warning in verse 43, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And you will, they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. The Lord Jesus paints a very graphic picture 
of the total destruction of Jerusalem, and not just Jerusalem, but the nation with it, a, a word that was fulfilled in the year A.D. 70. In that year, the Roman general Titus, later became the emperor, but at that time just the general, he came and laid siege to Jerusalem because Jerusalem as a political entity had rebelled against Rome. But behind that political intrigue and event was the hand of God. In the, in the coming of the Roman army was the coming of God's wrath against His disobedient covenant people. This was the covenant curse coming home to roost. Titus surrounded the city with his army, laid siege to it, built siege works, built walls even. And when the city was, had been cut off from all supplies and had been sufficiently weakened, the Roman army attacked, broke into the city, burned the temple, burned the city, killed just about everybody, and they decimated the entire thing so that there was hardly a stone left upon a stone. Jerusalem had been judged for its rejection of Jesus, its rejection of God. But it didn't have to be that way. And for those who on the day of our text, on Palm Sunday, for those who saw the Lord, the King Jesus, lament and heeded His warning, they would have escaped God's coming wrath. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that that is one of the very reasons why these heavy-duty prophecies and warnings are issued and uttered? There's no doubt that Jesus in our text is, is announcing a coming curse. He's telling the people that God's covenant curse is going to come down on His rebellious people. But it's announced in advance with the idea that some who hear the threat may yet repent, may yet be saved. That's true for all the imprecatory passages of the Old Testament, including those imprecatory psalms. Sometimes those psalms, they bother us, right? You, you read Psalm 137, you read Psalm 109, and, and it sounds like it's just a pronouncement of doom upon the wicked, and there's no chance of escape. But there is a chance for escape. In Psalm 137, the psalmist prays for God, on the one hand, to uphold the promise. What was God's promise? He promised to crush those who would oppress His people, Genesis 12. And if God would uphold that promise, that would be a comfort for the Israelites. But at the same time, by making a, a prayer like that in public via Psalm 137, where also the enemies could hear that kind of prayer, it gave those enemies a chance to repent so that God's judgment would not need to fall on them. Remember that God does not desire the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 33. His greatest desire is that the wicked repent, that the wicked turn from their sins and turn toward God and live. So those imprecatory passages, those imprecatory psalms and the like, they're not necessarily the final word. Certainly they reassured the church that God would fight 
their fight and bring true justice to bear, but God could choose to overcome the enemy by bringing them to repentance. That's how He could fulfill that pronouncement, just like He had done through Jonah in the, uh, or to Nineveh in the days of Jonah, remember? Yet 40 days, said Jonah, and this city will be overthrown. city repented, and the city was not overthrown. The imprecation did not come to pass, not at that time at least. So the imprecations, brothers and sisters, they're, a, they're an urgent message for those who hear them to repent before it's too late. And by grace, some of the Israelites that heard Jesus or saw Jesus that day, they do repent. Doesn't the book of Acts tell us that? That this lament of King Jesus is, is heard and responded to by 3,000 Jews on the day of Pentecost. This lament, you could say, is a prayer that some would repent, and on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 do and thousands in the days thereafter. What we see here, brothers and sisters, in this, this lament of our Savior is, a, is the passion of our Savior. He's, his heart is on His sleeve. This is the Son of God who came to earth. His purpose in coming was not to flatten the earth with judgment. It was not to condemn as many people as He could. No. He came to seek and save the lost. That's what He's on about. That's what He's after. That's His mission. Like all the prophets before Him, His mission was to call out to His rebellious people, urge them back to the way of the Lord. Jesus had been doing this already for three years, day in, day out. And here and there, He had specifically went out of His way to gather in or chase after individual lambs. He went to the Samaritan woman. We saw that a little while ago. He went to Zacchaeus in Jericho. He paddled across the lake to get that demon-possessed fella. And even though from the beginning he had been spurned by Jewish leaders and, and Pharisees, he had been rejected from the first months of his ministry, yet Jesus kept on preaching to his people. He kept on calling. He kept on desiring their true repentance. That is why even in the last moments of his life, he publicly wails. He publicly cries out. Imagine again this crowd seeing this. Imagine yourself being in the crowd. One minute you're partying. There's singing and joy and laughter, and all of a sudden, things fall quiet, and there's wailing from the man in the center of the crowd, King Jesus, wailing with great distressing cries, suffering in His lament, suffering because of the stubborn hearts of His people. That, that would have weighed on the Messiah. He was being rejected. He who loves them so was being hated so. Now hoping in His last-ditch cry that there would be a turn of heart for Jerusalem, for the hearts of His people to come back to their God. Understand this cry as the love of Christ our King, our High Priest, His great love for sinners 
like you, like me. Is that same love burning in your heart and in mine for fellow sinners, fellow lost sinners maybe? I think a lot of us know people who have strayed away from God's path. There's a lot of people we know that are covenant children, received the sign and seal of baptism, but who currently live in rebellion. How do we respond to those people? Do our hearts grow cold and callous toward them? Do we wash our hands of them and say, you know what, I've, I've tried. Now I'm done. They're on their own. What if King Jesus had said that about me, about you? Or maybe we are, we're so weary and tired, we're out of ideas how to reach that person we love, that rebellious person. But so we come to feel like they're, they're beyond reach, they're beyond hope. Well then, brothers and sisters, drink in from this text, from this lament, drink in the deep love of the Lord Jesus Christ and know that your King never gives up. Lament with Him over the lost sheep. Remember that He does not desire the death of the wicked. Christ, this very same Christ who in weakness laments outside of Jerusalem is now living in power in heaven above at His Father's right hand. He's ruling supreme, and as priest, He's praying constantly for all God's elect. Also the prodigal sons and the prodigal daughters, the stubborn covenant breakers that He knows are His sheep nevertheless. He prays for those and He has the power to change hearts. Did He not do that with the self-righteous Nicodemus, Pharisee Nicodemus, the Pharisee Saul? He changed them, brought them to faith. Did not Jesus' own brother James, who like all of his siblings first ridiculed the Lord, did not James later come to bow the knee to Jesus? Our hearts sometimes do get cold, don't they? But Jesus' heart never gets cold. It never gets callous. Christ's Spirit is invincible and it's inexhaustible. You can't tire the Spirit of Christ out. You can't wear the Spirit of Christ out. And guess what? The Spirit of Christ lives in you. He's been given to you. He resides in you. So ask your King Ask Him, Lord, refill my tank of love and compassion and mercy and all that I need. Refill my tank with Your Spirit so that I can keep hoping, keep praying, keep loving, keep reaching out in hope against hope that the stubborn heart of the person I love, a person I know You love in Your covenant, will be changed. You know, in all of the Gospels, 
our Lord Jesus Christ is said to have wept only two times. Once was at the death of Lazarus, his friend, and the other time is here in our text before the city of Jerusalem. And this crying is the much more intense lamenting of the covenant mediator who wished with all of his soul that it were otherwise with his people. It wasn't the death of Lazarus that caused Jesus that kind of wailing. And though, if you think about it, he had reason to weep in the garden of Gethsemane when the wrath of God pressed out of him the bloody sweat, yet even then he did not weep. His mournful lament, his river of tears was reserved for the stubborn hearts of his church, his people eagerly desiring their repentance. That's what's fueling the tears. Where, what is your most eager desire? For whom do you weep? Amen.